Good afternoon, everyone. Excellent. You're all awake. Um, We're in the middle of a series looking at stories Jesus told. And this afternoon, I want to have a little look with you at the parable of the ten miners. And it's not a story about ten people who work underground. I don't know if you say miner or meaner. We're going to say minor. But it's not talking about those guys with lamps on their helmets. Uh, A minor is an amount of money in the ancient world. So in this story that Jesus told, ten servants are all given one minor each. And uh, I'm told that in the ancient Greek world, one drachma would be equivalent to about a day's wages on average. And one minor is a hundred drachmas, or a hundred days' wages. So, and I think, I think it says in the bottom here somewhere, doesn't it, of the, in the footnote, that a minor, therefore, was about three months' wages. So it's not 50p. It's not even a two-pound coin. If someone gave you a coin that was worth three months' wages, you'd be careful not to lose it, wouldn't it? Because you'd have a few quid a few thousand quid in your pocket. So these servants were given some cash and the story that Jesus tells here is really about what they did with the cash that was entrusted to them. And uh, hopefully we'll get something good out of this story. Now, uh, I'm told that when, when you're preaching, it's always good to have one big idea, one main idea don't want to be too complicated. It's good for people to be able to take away a single kind of concept or truth or idea. And the whole talk should have one point and and all the other sub-points should point towards that so that you'll have no doubt what the big idea is when you go home. But I'm going to break that rule today because I want to introduce you to two big ideas. So we're not going to be mega complicated, but two big ideas um, to take off. So you, c- you could consider it to be a two for the price of one thing, couldn't you? little bonus. Um, so we're going to look at the parable mainly. But the reason that um, I want to give you two ideas is that in this chapter, I-, I think Luke deliberately gives two reasons why he tells this story. And um, so let, let me try and show you what I mean. First of all, it would be great if you've got your Bible open because you, you'll need to follow this a little. We're, we're on page 1053 if you've got one of the church Bibles, Luke chapter 19. You'll notice that Angela read to us um, not just the parable but what happens before the parable. And the, thir- and the first thing I want you to notice is that this chapter really is all one episode. What happens before and the parable together make one incident. So in verse 1, Luke says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And um, at the end of the chapter, uh, well, the end of uh, verse 27, where Angela read, what, verse 28, sorry, the next one. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is entering Jericho Something happens, and then he leaves, and he goes to Jerusalem. 
Um, it's important to recognise that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Um, this, this story and this incident happens only one week before Jesus dies on the cross. This is very, very close to the end of Jesus' life, the end of his ministry. And uh, just look back with me on, on the same page there. In the, in the previous chapter, 18 and verse 31, it says there, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. Very significant. Jesus is very explicit with them about where they're going. It's not the first time he said this. But they're on their way to Jerusalem so that he can die. And they just don't understand. They have no clue what he's talking about. In verse 35, as they're getting towards Jericho, there's a blind man there who Jesus heals. Everyone else thinks he's being a pest. He starts calling out and they try and tell him to shut up. And Jesus stops the whole crowd and says, bring him to me. And he heals him. And it says in verse um, 43, immediately this blind man received his sight and joins the crowd, following Jesus to Jerusalem where he's going to die. Praising God. When all the people saw it, they praised God. So as they come into Jericho, there's a whole crowd, an entourage of people, all of them, amazed, tumbling down the road into the city of Jericho. My kids were watching a documentary the other day about Justin Bieber, teenage pop sensation, apparently. He only looks about eight. But this, in this documentary, Justin Bieber was travelling all over Europe on tour. So the kids were all watching this and they were a day in the life of Justin Bieber. I think the few minutes I caught, he was in Norway. And there's all little interviews and it shows him getting ready and all the behind the scenes. A day in the life of Justin Bieber. I want you to see that this is, it's not a day in the life of Justin Bieber. This is a day in the life of Jesus. He's not on tour in Norway, but he's just arriving in Jericho. He's passing through. He's got a whole crowd of people with him. And Luke wants us to know what happens on this day. Here's a day in the life of Christ. Just look with me at verse 11 of uh, chapter 19. Because this is the verse where that connects the two incidents. Something happens in verse 1 to 10, which we'll look at. But in verse 11, Luke very specifically and deliberately says, While they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. So the, parable, the story, that the parable that Jesus tells, somehow is linked to what's just happened in the house of Zacchaeus. And while they're still listening to Jesus summarise what's happened, 
Jesus tells this parable of the ten miners. It's not just a random story. I think Luke deliberately wants us to see that it follows on in some way. But that's not all, because in verse 11, Luke also gives us another reason. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now, that is understandable in a way, isn't it? You think about the crowd here. Momentum's building. Excitement is growing. A crowd's gathering. Something is beginning to stir. Even the blind man who's healed joins in the, the kind of conga procession as they kind of get to Jericho. Zacchaeus, in the first ten verses, has this amazing experience. We'll look at that. And what's more, Jesus has already said to them, we're going to Jerusalem. That's the capital city. So you've got this whole kind of trail of people. There's a buzz going around. People are beginning to think, this is it. This is the moment. The Christ has come. We're going to see what happens. And yet, within a week, the same Jesus will be hanging, bleeding, dead on a Roman cross. And this crowd will be nowhere to be seen. In fact, he's just told his disciples that this is why he's going to Jerusalem. To die. This journey for Jesus is a walk to the gallows, if you like. And the crowd are thinking, the kingdom of God's going to come. It's all happening. It's now, here, this moment. So Luke says that Jesus tells this parable to emphasize delay in some way, he's telling this parable to deal with the fact that they thought the kingdom of God was going to come right there, right then. And he's seeking to show them what his mission in the world really is. The kingdom of God has come in a way, but it's not quite what they think it is. They're thinking he's going to defeat the Romans and give them their country back. He's planning to go there and die at the hand of the Romans. So, here is my two ideas. Um, do we have another slide? I'll, I'll let you do it. Here we go. We don't want all of them though. <laughs> Number one. The first idea I want us to get across is the mission of Jesus in this world is to change lives. And the second big idea is he entrusts this task to his followers, his servants. That's you. The mission of Jesus in the world is to change people's lives and he entrusts that task to you.
I think what happens to Zacchaeus, and the first reason why Jesus tells this story at this point, demonstrates the first idea that Jesus changes lives. Zacchaeus is an example of Jesus doing exactly that, as we'll see. I think the story that Jesus goes on to tell teaches the second part, which is that he is entrusting his servants with his mission in the world. And if his mission is to change lives, that is what he expects his servants to be doing in his power and by his grace. So it's not one big idea, but two big ideas. You get that? The mission of Jesus is to change lives, and he entrusts that task to his followers. Let's um, think a little bit about the first of these ideas then. We'll leave those there, and we'll get on to the parable in a minute. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a story. While they were listening to what? Well, if we go back um, into verse 9 and 10, Jesus is speaking. And the parable flows straight out of this. So we'll, we'll work backwards into the story. We'll start at the end. While they were listening to what? Well, in verse 9, Jesus says, Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus says three things there, doesn't he? The first thing he says is, salvation has come to this house. What a phrase that is. Salvation has come to this house. All sorts of things come to my house. Sometimes, Tesco deliveries come. You can dial in on the internet, order your food online, and then a man comes in a van with a whole load of shopping. Hello, Mr. Jones, your shopping's arrived. And he brings all the shopping. You don't even have to go and select it yourself. Sometimes Tesco shopping comes to our house. Sometimes the postman comes. He's got a bit of a limp. I don't know how he is a postman, because he's got a bit of a limp. He looks like he struggles to me. I recognise him one day as an old colleague from the pit at Maltby that I used to work at. And I passed him on the drive and I said, is your name Barry Frost? Yes, it is. I used to work with you. Oh, I thought I recognised you. And we had a little... My old postman is a work colleague. We have friends who come to our house. We look forward to that. We have workmen sometimes who come to our house. I've just spotted Julian on the back row. Sometimes we have hairdressers who come to our house. They cut our hair. Might be due one soon. Maybe... Maybe you've had someone famous come to your house. I don't know. A celebrity. Has a celebrity ever come to your house? That'd make you do the housework, wouldn't it? <laughs> if you knew they were coming. Justin Bieber. <laughs> Maybe not. Here, it's not a delivery. It's not a celebrity. It isn't the Queen. It isn't even someone from Camelot with a winning lottery announcement. Salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house. What was broken is being fixed. 
Can you imagine what a difference it would make in our society if salvation came to every house? What a difference it would make. Secondly, Jesus says, this man is a son of Abraham. I'd love to linger with you on that really, but the the idea of being a son of Abraham, really, that's a title for someone who's a Jew, isn't it? Because they trace their their ancestry, that's the word I'm looking for, right back to Abraham. There's a connection with last week's story here, because this man, Zacchaeus, is a tax collector, considered by his own people to be a traitor, collecting taxes from Jews and giving it to the Romans. Not only that, but this guy, it says in verse 2, is a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Most tax collectors got wealthy by adding a percentage on and creaming profit from their own already poor and oppressed people. No wonder they were hated. He was born a Jew, but he wasn't considered to be a Jew because of his immoral, dishonest, thieving lifestyle. He's considered an outcast. He's not a true son of Abraham. Yet on this day, salvation comes to this house and Jesus says, this man too, this man, a robber, is a son of Abraham. The third thing that Jesus says then, in summary, is that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man is a title for the Messiah. He's talking about himself without saying, I, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save what was lost. The summary here is that Jesus has come with a specific aim in mind. His mission in the world is to seek and save people who are outside and bring them in. His great task is to bring salvation to people's homes. And I want you to notice here that Jesus isn't waiting passively for people to come to him, is he? He's active. He's aggressive. He's on the hunt. This is Jesus in hot pursuit of Zacchaeus what is really interesting here is the way he singles this man out the whole crowd tumble into Jericho Zacchaeus it says it says in verse 3 he was a short man and he was curious so he runs on ahead he climbs a sycamore tree maybe he didn't want anyone to see him maybe he didn't want someone to spit at him as he walked He runs ahead and he climbs a sycamore tree. Apparently sycamore trees could be 30 or 40 feet tall. He sits in the branches of the tree as the crowd goes past. All the crowd, the blind man's there, skipping along because he can see. And the crowd, they all stop because Jesus stops. And he looks up into the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down here now. I'm coming to your house. What? And the whole crowd... Zacchaeus climbs down the tree and the whole crowd follow them to his house. Put the kettle on. Zacchaeus! Just look with me at verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Does he know who Zacchaeus is? 
We don't like talking to men like Zacchaeus. And yet Jesus not only knows his name, but wants to go to his house. And something happens to Zacchaeus on this day. And in verse 8, this man, this despised and twisted little man, stands up in public and says to Jesus, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. Isn't that incredible? Something has happened to Zacchaeus. His whole life has been turned upside down. He's changed from being a money grabber into a money giver. Instead of selfishness, he now wants to be honest. Instead of greed, he now wants to be generous. Instead of living in the shadows, he wants to put right what's wrong and he means business, doesn't he? This, whole, this man's whole value set has turned upside down. Who says people can't change? Because of Jesus, this man has experienced forgiveness and a new hope and Jesus sums all that up to everyone listening, all the crowd maybe spilling out outside and he says today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham why? for the son of man came to seek and save what was lost, Jesus is effectively pointing to Zacchaeus and saying listen look at that that, my friends, is salvation. <laughs> Isn't it? That is what it looks like when someone who is lost is found. That is a life being changed. And that is what I've come to do in this world. I've come to seek and save people like Zacchaeus. That is my mission. That is my aim. That is my purpose. That is my job. And think about it. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. He actually stops and singles this man out to bring salvation to his house. So my first big idea is that Jesus' mission in his world is to change people's lives. To turn them around. To bring people who are outside, inside. And then Luke says in verse 11, while they were listening to this, I mean, that, give us a couple of weeks, Lord, to take all that in. <laughs> while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. So my second idea is that Jesus entrusts this task that he's engaged, it's his task really, but he entrusts it to those whose lives he has changed. How does this parable or story then show this second idea? Okay, let's have another slide. The king who went away. I thought that's what it said. The king who went away. So, here's the story. 
A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, that is a little bit odd, isn't it? When you're crown king, do you not normally just go to the capital city and the Archbishop of Canterbury or someone? Isn't it a bit odd for a nobleman to travel to a faraway country to be crowned king? Well, actually, I didn't know this, but this had actually, actually, it doesn't have a heaps, that does it? Actually, this had happened in Jesus' lifetime. The Jewish people were ruled by a man called Herod, as you'll know when Jesus was born. He was known as King Herod, or Herod the Great. His family was very powerful. They had very strong connections with Rome, and he was a fairly brutal king. He reigned for 30 years. He was very famous for his building projects. He he, he expanded and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He died in 4 BC, but the succession of the throne wasn't clear. He changed his will so many times, not that it was up to him, because it was Rome that would decide, but he had changed his will so many times. And eventually it was settled in Rome to divide the kingdom up into a half and two quarters. And three of his sons became rulers, but they weren't allowed to be called kings. They were called, well, two of them were called tetrarchs. And there was another son called Archelaus, who inherited the larger part, including Jerusalem. He was known as an ethnarch. He was even more brutal than his dad. And he, he figures actually in the Christmas story. If um, just flick, just keep your page finger there and flick back to Matthew chapter 2. We're coming up to Christmas shortly. And you'll remember when the, the, the Magi came to Jerusalem to inquire about where the king of the Jews was going to be born and they had a conversation with King Herod in chapter 2, Matthew. And uh, Joseph and Mary flee temporarily south to Egypt because Herod's trying to kill all the babies. But after Herod died, just look at verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, son of Herod, was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew instead to the district of Galilee, much further north, and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So this man, Archelaus, actually had a big effect on where Jesus grew up. They didn't go back to Judea, they went to Nazareth because Archelaus was considered to be more brutal than his dad had been. So this is all kind of there in the Bible. Why is it all relevant? This is why it's relevant, because after the dad, Herod, died, Archelaus went to Rome to be crowned ruler. And it's even more significant when you read verse 14 in Luke in Luke's Gospel, 
because it says there that his subjects hated this nobleman so much that they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Do you know that's exactly what happened? A group of Jews set sail from Caesarea and went to Rome to plead with the emperor not to allow Archelaus to become their king. That's one reason why he, he did grant their wish slightly because he wouldn't allow him to call himself king. And this happened in Jesus' lifetime. There was opposition to this nobleman being crowned king and a delegation follows him to Rome. And when he came back, you can imagine he wasn't very happy. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know what brutality occurred afterwards, but I'm sure that the, the end of this story, when he calls all his enemies and says, have them killed. This is very, I, th I think this is a, a play on that story that would have been known in their popular culture. Jesus is not comparing himself to Archelaus, the wicked, brutal king. He's just latching on to this idea that the king is going away to be crowned. You get that? This story points to Jesus. Jesus is the man of noble birth. And the kingdom is not yet consummated. He is, he is going away to have a crown placed on his head. And then, one day, he's going to come back. We were talking on Thursday in, in our Christianity Explored class about the chronology of Jesus' life. We had a very interesting discussion. Um, Jesus was born. He lived for 33 years. He died. He rose again from the dead, proving with power that he's the Son of God. He appeared to his disciples for a period of about six weeks. And then he ascended back to heaven. And one day, King Jesus will return to this world. There's a lovely uh, passage in the book of Philippians. Let me read this to you. Paul was writing to the church there and he says, Your attitude should be the same as Jesus, the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. At this point in the story, the disciples and the crowd don't realise that Jesus is going to die, to rise again, ascend to heaven, and that his kingdom will not finally be consummated until he returns. His first coming was a baby. His second coming will be as a king. And the point of this story is that we live, as they lived, in, an, in a kind of in-between time. And the, the big story here is that Christ has come and achieved salvation. 
He's begun his kingdom. He's inaugurated his kingdom. But now there's a delay until he comes again. He has come, and yet he's coming again. So the whole point of this story is that the kingdom isn't being consummated next week. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. And I suppose in hindsight the disciples did understand that story. Let's have another slide. So the first point is the king who went away. The second thing is a call to be productive. So let's get into the story. Verse 13, he called ten of his servants, gave them ten miners. And what did he say? Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. verse 15 he was made king however and he returned home and then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they'd done with it or gained with it this part is a bit like the apprentice isn't it ten servants there they are walking over the bridge ten servants I'm going to give you all you can load sugar there I'm going to give you all one minor And one day I'm coming back and you're going to be in the boardroom. And I want to know if you made a profit with my money. It's like the apprentice, isn't it? There's no reason given. The point of the story is, while I'm away, I want you to be busy, isn't it? That's what he's saying. I'm going to take a crown. While I'm gone, I want you to put my resources to good effect. So, I want to make three points uh, under that heading. And the first is, it's not party time yet. I think that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Jesus is speaking to people here who think that the kingdom is going to come today. Do you remember the disciples of Jesus arguing about who's going to be the greatest? Was it the mother of James and John who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, can I have a quiet word? When you come into your kingdom, would it be possible for James and John to sit on either side of you? (laughs) They thought the kingdom was going to come tomorrow. They thought all their privileges, we followed Jesus for all this time. He's going to make you the prime minister. You'll be the chancellor of the exchequer. It's going to be fantastic. Matthew Henry wonders if this is what the disciples were thinking. They expected that his apostles and immediate attendants should be advanced to dignity and honour, that they should all be made princes and peers, privy councillors and judges, have all the pomp and preferments of the court and the town. But Christ here tells them that instead of this, he designed them to be men of business. There will be a time for glory, but not yet. Jesus is making clear to them that in this in-between time, they are not to lie in a hammock dreaming of ease. But they are to work hard. Although the kingdom in one sense has come, and although lives are being changed, They still live in a fallen world and have to face the reality 
of pain, brokenness, disappointment, while looking forward to the day when Jesus will come and consummate the kingdom that he's inaugurated. Do you know, I think one of the most dangerous things that Christian believers can fall into is the subtle idea that what Christ promises them is to be true now. But it isn't. Luke says that Jesus told this parable because they thought the kingdom was coming now. And this is a problem for us sometimes. We want everything to be instant, don't we? Immediate. If there isn't results, you know, we give up after two minutes because our patience runs out. Glory has come in one sense. And yet the time now is one of struggling and working and striving and straining. We can live and work in the light of what Christ has done, but it isn't time for glory yet. There's work to be done. So the question is, what will these servants do in the meantime? What will they do while the king they love is absent? And how do they hold in tension the fact that he is going to be crowned king, but it's not fully consummated yet? What will they do in the in-between time? Well, the story goes on. We need to be quick. They do all end up in the boardroom, don't they? But it's all edited. You know, the BBC, they always edit it, don't they? And you only get to know three of them here. The other seven, we don't know. The first one comes in. And here's the results. Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Richard was quite right. Where can you put money to earn a return of ten times? He's done pretty good, isn't he? So I'll sugar be pleased with him. I've given you a pound, you made ten. I've given you three months' wages, you've made thirty months' wages. It's pretty good. The king says, because you've been faithful in this very small matter, you can be in charge of ten cities. That's interesting on its own, isn't it? We've already said that one miner was three months' wages. That isn't enough to buy one house, let alone one city. But the fact that he's been faithful with the small means that when the king comes back, he's trusted with a great deal more. The point is, have you been faithful while I've been away have you been diligent have you invested the resources I've given you and put them to good use I think the moral in the story is that faithfulness in little things brings greatness the second one likewise comes in he's gained five more Um, and so far everyone is tuned in this man's gone away to be crowned he gives ten of his servants a task two of them respond marvellously and now for the punchline And we've got another slide. No excuse. One of them comes and brings his mind about, I can imagine this happening on The Apprentice. There you go, sir. I've kept it safe for you. I've wrapped it in my cleanest, best handkerchief and put it in my top drawer. And uh, here it is. Lord Sugar would rip his head off, wouldn't he? You've done what? 
You've done well. When I was 16, I was selling fruit out the back of my gut. Hey, you'd go bananas. Apparently, this word that's used, for, when it, where, where does it say it? Let me just find. Verse 20. Sir, here's your mind. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. That word is the word that it, it could better be translated, napkin or handkerchief. It's the word for a piece of cloth that a worker would use to wipe the sweat off their brow. And what's he been doing with his handkerchief? Nothing. He has no sweat on his brow, does he? His hanky is clean because he hasn't done a day's work in his life. So he wraps the coin in it, puts it in his drawer. His hanky was clean because he'd never got his hands mucky. He was careless. He took no risk. He was indifferent. He has no zip or zest. It isn't that he has no talent. He just doesn't use it. Maybe his excuse was, I didn't want to lose it. And so he just kept it safe. He thought, if I don't do any harm, that'll be okay. But his master isn't asking, have you not done any harm? His master wants to know, have you done any good? And maybe it dawns on him that his master's not too pleased when he gets in the boardroom here because he starts mumbling excuses. Verse 21. Oh, what a silly man. What a silly, silly man. When, you, when you're in trouble, the last thing you do is blame your boss, isn't it? Here it is. I've kept it safe for you. He sees his boss's face drop. And then he thinks, I know how to get this, I know how to get myself out of this. I'll blame him. I was afraid of you. You're a hard man. What? You, 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 you've been lazy and, you, and you're now saying that it's my fault. You're a hard man. Reaping what you didn't sow. Taking out what you didn't put in. Even if that was true, it wasn't true for him, was it? He'd given him a minor. He wasn't asking him to produce it from nothing. And the master says, I will condemn you by your own words. I just wonder if there's something here. Just, just think about this for a minute. Was it, was it his view of his master that led him to cave in on himself. Is it just an excuse that? I, I want to suggest to you, just think about this is something to take away. Our work, our lives, our service as Christian believers will be shaped by what we really think of Jesus. And listen, if you, if you harbour a secret sense, he's a hard taskmaster, Jesus. Do you know what will happen? You'll wrap it in a handkerchief and you'll put it in the drawer and you won't do anything. Why? Because you're afraid of him. Was this man just making this an excuse? Was there a little subtle clue there? Either way, his excuse makes it worse, doesn't it? A famous writer called A.W. Tozer said this, It is sad when a Christian is motivated by slavish fear instead of loving faith. While there is a proper fear of the Lord that should be in every Christian's heart, that fear should be the respect of a loving child 
and not the dread of a frightened slave. Nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy concept of God. How important it is that we do the will of God from our hearts. You're a hard man. Never going to get anywhere. Well, lazy people, this lazy person makes a ridiculous excuse. The truth is he didn't really care about what his master cared about. And he he was what we would call in our modern language bone idle, wasn't he? He he was just bone idle. And and blaming someone else for the fact he was bone idle. It's not my fault. Well, there's a little twist here. Um, I wonder if if you spotted it. Oh, well, I suppose we could just touch on verse 23. The, the master says to him, if, you, if I'm such a hard guy and you're so risk averse, you could have just put the money in the bank and you'd have at least got interest on it. So he's kind of condemned himself, hasn't he? If you were that worried, you could have at least got interest on it. The fact is you're born idle and you've just put it in a drawer because you're not bothered. I think that's what the king is saying to him. Now, then he said to those standing by, verse 24, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. And they, and they say, sir, he already has ten. That's not fair. And then Jesus says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. There's another slide here. I came across a sermon on this chapter and the title was Use It or Lose It. I thought it was a great title. Use It or Lose It. Those who won't use their gifts will lose them. Those who've been dishonest can't be trusted. He's been idle. And there's a principle here, isn't there, that's true in life generally. Those who seek spiritual gain will become richer in grace. But those those who neglect their own souls will be impoverished and lose even what they thought they had. It's true in life. You use something, it keeps it fresh, doesn't it? You neglect it, it gathers dust, eventually it won't work at all. The challenge I think from Jesus here is do you have opportunities to do good? Use them. Don't waste them. Do you have opportunities to learn and grow? Use them. Do you have resources that God has given to you? God has blessed you. Invest them. Don't hoard them or fritter them away. There's an amazing principle that when you use what you have, it leads to growth, not decline. In the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, chapter 11 and verse 24, the wise teacher says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 13 there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun riches were kept by their owner to his hurt and those 